You might be expecting me to say, open your Bibles to the book of Acts, but I'm not going to say that this morning. Turn, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. One of those little Pauline epistles uh, toward the back. Uh, if you're going to memorize the books of the Bible, just know these are all in order. The, the, the T's are in order. First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. So you find little T's. Second Timothy is, is right there in alphabetical order with the other epistles. Uh, and we are at Second Timothy chapter three, verses one through seventeen, and see if this does not even describe the church today. God's word says this. This is Paul, essentially one of his last uh, things he wrote to a young pastor. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's God's word this morning. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures, for all of them, for 
Acts, where we have spent a lot of time on Sunday mornings for the psalm that we heard to start our service this morning, for all the scriptures that we've been reading and various ones in your congregation here in various places. And we've listened to um, teachings from various things and we've read and we've heard. And Lord, we just thank you for the totality of scripture that has washed over us even this week as a congregation. We pray now for this sacred time. We pray for your Holy Spirit's presence as we listen and think about your word, your truth, your plan. Lord, we, we pray that you'd help us and open our hearts to the, the theology. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a larger church. We call it the Universal Church. It's not everyone uh, who claims to be a Christian, but everyone who actually is a Christian. And you're part of Christ's bride, the universal church, people who've been saved from all ages, those fathers we sung about who died in their dungeons uh, for the faith, those people that uh, taught Timothy from a child. We think of people like uh, the mother and the grandmother. What were their names? Lois and Eunice. Uh, People like that that have handed down the faith. There's a universal church. It's not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, but everybody who's been saved by God's grace, who've been given those gifts of repentance and faith. And and boy, that's uh, even though though it's a narrow path that Jesus talked about, uh, if we saw the raw numbers, we'd say that's a lot of people, as long as we didn't put it in the context of of the broad path that that has led to destruction. There's heaven, and that's where they are. It's where they're headed. As the gospel spread in Scripture and people were added to the universal church, they became part of local churches. That's what we've been reading about in Acts, as they went around and and shared the gospel, and God brought people, and they collected together. And in these churches, they ordained officers, and they kept widows' lists, and they had roles and logs, and they worshipped together as, as individual groups of believers. Uh, they were part of what we would call the, uh, the, the, the local church or the particularized church. We came here, a couple of us, survival of the fittest people. I love that, and I can't help but think of, of Herb's phrase, but Herb and I own it, and Paula and I were here some, some early days, about 15 or 16 years ago said, let's plant a church up here. And there were four or five families. Well, do you have, does a church need a name? Do you have to have a name in the Bible? Did they have a, a what was the name of, of the churches in the Bible? They really weren't, were they? The church at Ephesus would be the name. The church at Philippi. The church at Galatia. The church in Corinth. And the names were just known in Scripture as that. But culturally, uh, the way things have played out and spun out over history, it's not unbiblical to have a name. I, you know, if we wanted to be think we were cute or something, we could have just called it church and put a big sign out there, church. Uh, but that might have been uh, not, not uh, kind of looked even almost like an insult to the other churches. So uh, we, we came up with the name back then, called it Christ the Shepherd. There's a reason why this church was named Christ the Shepherd. And the group that was here at the time voted on that. I have to say it was my suggestion and I pushed for it. 
um, having seen and known how hard it is for churches to really shepherd their people, um, thinking about passages like Ezekiel 34 where God said, Woe to my shepherds who beat the sheep and abuse the sheep and let the sheep abuse each other. And now there's a strong Ezekiel 34 uh, need in churches today. John 10.10 was another passage, and that's kind of like our church's theme verse about uh, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and and I came that you might have life and have it to the full. So we, we named our particular church. We were already part of a denomination. What's our denomination? We're Presbyterian. What does that mean? Why are we Presbyterian? Why that church at this time? And we, we looked through that and, and doing our very best to say that's... Uh, from Acts 15, there's some good churches that, that aren't Presbyterian. There's some great churches that aren't Presbyterian. There's some pretty bad churches that are Presbyterian. But we looked at it and we said, we're, gonna, we're part of this denomination at this time. We're part of something called the PCA. Talked about that. Uh, our name, uh, Christ the Shepherd Church, PCA. Now, the reason why Christ the Shepherd worked is because it worked good in our neighborhood. Um, uh, it fit into the landscape of New England, post-Catholic culture. Uh, I've had so many people say to me, oh, I had my first Holy Communion at Church of the Good Shepherd, they say. And so it's not an offensive smack in the face. You know, we didn't want to call ourselves the you're-going-to-hell Presbyterian Church. Um, or, or names like that or some weird name that only mattered to us. And it was just like a weird deal. So Christ the shepherd fit. It had a meaning where it fit into the landscape, but it fit into what we hoped we could be. A church that filled with people under shepherds who were shepherding under Jesus Christ, our shepherd. Parents who shepherded their kids. Didn't beat them with the rod, but beat the enemies off with the rod, but used that staff. So there was, there was a reason for all of that as we, as we came into being. Where would we meet? Didn't always meet here, did we? Rented a hotel room, one of those places down off exit two. We would meet for these organizational meetings. We then did some research into New England at the time, and it said people uh, uh, would be more accepting of a church if there was a permanence to it seemed like that mattered more than other places where there were churches all over the place and pop-up churches all the time. Planting a church in the Bible Belt in those days, it's just hang up a shingle and come up with some kind of a unique new band and, and, uh, and, and they, they come. And, and you, get, you get people that are sick of this church and try this church. New England was a different matter. And uh, New England people were going to look at you and say, what, where's the permanence? It's just some little fly-by-night deal. And so we got, in the early days, we had a, an office space, and the man let us hollow out or break down a wall, and we, we extended that. We had two big offices that became one church worship space, and my study was adjacent to that in that same building. And so there was a sense of permanence, uh, at least something, where there were chairs set up, and we weren't just breaking down and setting up and all of those things. And so we had a place. Then we had a question of... Uh, 
what will we preach? What will we preach? What will our message be? We painstakingly crafted a message that would draw a crowd, get people to donate lots of money, tickle itching ears. How much Jesus would we include? Uh, Would we talk about heaven? Of course. Hell? Maybe not. Sin? Taboo. Uh, How would our message make us loved by everyone in the community? How could we keep people from being offended at the gospel? How would we let everyone know they could keep doing whatever it is they were doing, but they just needed to add Jesus? (laughs) Okay, you know I'm joking. (laughs) That wasn't it. The question was never what to preach. What is a church? What is the message of the church? Thankfully, we didn't have to think too hard about that. The gospel, the Bible, what's the word say? Uh, Is it going to be popular? Well, maybe some parts of of the gospel are popular at some times in some ways, uh, and maybe they aren't. And history swings, but you tell the truth. And while you think about things like, what's your name? What's your location going to be? Where are you landed in this vast panorama of churches and denominations? What, what's your church? Uh, the question had, ne- had better never, ever be, what do you preach? Lately, as I've said before, I feel like Christ the Shepherd is undergoing a renaissance period. To me, right now, this feels like a church plant all over again but a fun one, a good one. met with somebody um, uh, earlier in the week, and, you know, we're talking about be, getting old, and when, when do you hang up, you know, whatever, and I'm like, well, I've got three pictures in my study at home, three, three heroes, not, not, not my only three heroes, but three people that I like a lot, admire for various things. I guess I can say this. I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, uh, yeah, I'll say it. One of them's Ronald Reagan. There's his picture. One of them's Johnny Cash. There's his picture. One of them's Winston Churchill, uh, everybody's favorite. There's his picture. And I said, those three guys did their best work, in my opinion. They had moderate degree of something in the early part, but they were about my age when they hit their stride. And I feel like, good, like something's shaking. We have a wonderful launch team. When we first started, they said, don't ever, don't call those people. said two things. Uh, The people that are sitting around in your your living room on your couch planning the church, don't get too attached to them because they're not going to be there in two years. (laughs) And I've told you, I said, well, that's going to be different for me because I'm such a great people person. I'm a gatherer of people, and, and there's nowhere for them to go in New England. And I found out I'm not that great of a gatherer of people. (laughs) And they found somewhere to go because they went. Um, but we, they said, don't call them. That was the first thing, is don't get too attached to them because the way, the way things just play out in American Christianity, they're not going to be around. Um, but they also said, whatever you do, don't call them the core group because the ones that do hang around, if, if, they're, if they're there for 20 years later, they're still thinking they are the core group. So call them the launch team. The launch team. They're getting it started. And I'm just thinking, right now, what a launch team we have in our church. 
you. Boy, this is going to be fun to be God's church and to be God's people and to see what God does in turbulent times when churches are crashing and burning and caving and when people are looking for answers, when, when the economy crashes. What is it, a 30-year inflationary high? And they're saying, well, it's going to be that way, but the last half of next year it's going to go down. How would they know that? All we know is up and up and up, and we know things are not good. And we know people are, are, are at, at, at war with each other and at odds, and we know that there's one thing that, that we all need, and that's the gospel of Jesus. So let's, let's have a, a mindset of, of, wow, here's God's church. We're part of this together. We're the launch team, loving, praying for, for a greater Danbury and beyond. God has provided us with elders and deacons that aren't an hour's drive away, worshiping in a different church where they are also elders. Wow, what a privilege. Uh, when it does say, if, if, you've ever, if you've ever said about somebody, about some elder in some church you've been in, well, he thinks he's God's gift to the church, you were right. Scripture tells us that's a gift, and God's given us that. So we have that, and we have that going on. What a time to, to be a church. God's given us a lovely building. We didn't know where we would meet eventually. We've got a place. The building's not the church, but it's a nice place for a church to meet and other churches benefiting from it as well. Me personally, I've been a Christian 16 years longer than I had been then. Not, not perfect and not getting there, but, but a little wiser, I think. And, and you've got to have a scar or two on your face, and you've got to have some setbacks, and you've got to have some, some breakthroughs. And I, I feel better about, about the, the, the pastor here than the pastor that was here 16 years ago. I'll say that. The message we proclaim, the same. The message is the same. The message does not change. No need to change the gospel message in danger if we do. We're not woke church. We're not cool dudes. We're not falling all over ourselves trying to be relevant or prove our relevancy. We're relevant because everybody needs Jesus. We don't have to get out there and code ourselves and, and be, be somebody different. And, and, and We just preach the gospel and love Jesus and confess our sins and and give grace, and, and, and help each other out, and point out each other, and, and, and lift each other up, and we, we talk about Jesus and the cross all the time. All are welcome, of course, and all are going to be treated the same when they come in. And how is that? Loved, exposed to the truth of Scripture, told of a place called heaven, warned of a place called hell, Introduced to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Called on to repent of their sins and place their trust in Jesus for eternal life. Given an opportunity to meet at least weekly to worship the God who made them, takes care of them, and provided eternal life. Be served at the Lord's table. Welcomed in fellowship with other Christians as the local expression of the body of Christ. The purpose of our church is the purpose of the church. 
Love how the Westminster Confession puts it. That little phrase, the gathering and perfecting of the saints. The whole confession, chapter 25, is about the church. 25, section 3 says, Unto this Catholic visible church, God has given the ministry, oracles, and ordinance of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world and does by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual unto. Oh, yeah, we, we talk, we joke. There's a joke, there's a phrase in our history, and the elders know the, the backstory, and I'm not going to tell you the backstory, but uh, sometimes we've been talking about finances, and somebody will laugh and say, by October, this church will be insolvent. It's a funny thing because it's just that it won't be unless God wants it to be. And if God wants it to be, that's the very best thing. But God has seen us through so much. What gave sustenance in those early days of planning Christ the shepherd is the same thing that will give us encouragement during this wonderful time of reinvigoration. The knowledge that it is the Lord's church, the Lord's work, the Lord's message. One of my family members was part of a church and the church plant was going on and it, it folded and faded and, and uh, she had long since been gone from there. She felt, she felt like they treated her like we sadly treated so many people. Remember the old Pony Express? Ride that horse till it's dead. You got to get the mail out. The horse dies, throw in the ditch, hop on another fresh horse and keep going. And, and, and church plants can do that and put guilt trips on the people. If you don't do this... If you don't show up for the work day, uh, the church will fail and it'll be your fault. Uh, no, it won't. But I was saying to her, here's a good way and, and verses that helped us out in the early days of Christ the shepherd. Psalm 127, 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So as we see what God has for us as a church, as we move forward and love and welcome people in, uh, one thing that's not on the menu is the bread of anxious toil. That's bad for you. It does you no good, no nutrients in the bread of anxious toil. Trust the Lord. Tip your head back and laugh and see what God's going to do. It's a good God. He loves his word. He loves it when Jesus is front and center. It's up to God. Yeah, there have been tears and it hasn't been easy, and there's a reason why we say in October we'll be insolvent been a whole lot of fun though to match the fear and here we are i've got a bible in my home office it's got one of those big things and you can write stuff in the side of it you know writing your margins and arrows and things and and i have underlined that psalm 127 at an arrow pointing to those verses that i just read about unless the lord builds a house i wrote christ the shepherd years one through ten and then right above it i have christ the shepherd years 11 and following these verses 
Psalm 126, 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. But that hinges on the message. What's the message? What do we sing about? What does the table talk about? What are the, 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 the Sunday school classes pointing to? What's the sermon going to be? What's it all about? And on this Reformation Day, I would just say we can do no better than to latch on to what is known as the five solas of the Reformation. I had a guy recently tell me, this is funny. Okay, so when somebody says to you, uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you this, and don't take it wrong because I really mean it as a compliment. <laughs> and as they get ready to tell you this, uh, what are you thinking? It's like the guy who raises his hand in class and says, uh, teacher, I don't mean to be res- disrespectful, but... <laughs> so the guy that said that to me uh, recently. He says, don't mean any disrespect. I actually mean this as a compliment. You are a very simple man. <laughs> I said, good, Leonard Skinner wrote a song about me. Simple kind of man. I like that. Um, uh, you're a simple man. Uh, you just, you're not razzle-dazzle enough. And, and the context may have been in theology or church planning or what, or I don't know. I wasn't trying to do my Will Rogers homespun uh, thing, but I did have my Iowa Hawkeyes hat on, so, so maybe that uh, made, it, made him say that. You better be a simple person when it comes to your faith. You ever been in a class? There's a big whiteboard on it. It's a math class. And the teacher writes, two plus two equals. You go, wow, I wonder what he's going to say because we know the answer to two plus two, that's four. And then he writes, and there's formulas, and there's letters, and there's pluses and minuses, and there's all this whirly gig stuff all over the whiteboard. In the bottom corner, he writes, four. You go, two plus two, four. What's all this in between? Reformers boiled it down. Paul in the Bible said, Christ and him crucified. Okay, so Reformation, church was a mess. People were stealing, like leaders were stealing the, 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 the money. They had to build that great cathedral there. Um, uh, they concocted a plan to get more money out of the people. Indulgences, uh, Tetzel, the moment the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs and and your hope wasn't in Jesus Christ. Your hope was in somebody after you died. Old, old Sue's laying there in her coffin waiting for Jackie to throw some money in uh, to, to give something so that her soul could go to heaven because the Pope said so. That wasn't the only thing. But that was maybe the straw, it seems like, that tipped the camels back. But there was so much going on. And it wasn't just Luther. It was people before him and people after him. And, and, and they didn't have some conference. They didn't do a Zoom meeting and say, let's just narrow our message down to five things. They didn't coordinate this. People came along later and, and formulated what they call the five solas of the Reformation, the five onlys. That's our message. That's still what it needs to be. The Marie Kondo approach to theology. That's a great book, by the way. The Japanese Art of Tidying Up. That's what we're going to do here on, on, uh, on work day. That's what we want to do in our home. Whatever you can touch, clean it up, 
Get rid of the stuff you don't need. Hold that thing up and say, do I need that? Is that actually good for me? Or is that even clouding everything else in my closet? And there's that shirt that I used to wear all the time. And I, didn't, I even forgot I had that shirt. But I got rid of all these other crappy shirts that, that somebody gave me. And now I can see that shirt. We do that with our theology. All this extraneous stuff. What's the gospel? What do we need? Build from there. Worked in food service for a woman when I was in college. And she would say, a place for everything and everything in its place. Numero uno for this church has got to be, and for you in your life has got to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these five solas are what you need to hang your hat on. Quickly, we'll go through them. The glory of God alone. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Paul writes to this church that was struggling with, even early on, keeping the first things first and the second things second. And he, he sums up one of their dilemmas by saying, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He was basing this on Isaiah 42.8, where God said, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The glory of God alone. People have said about this one of the five. They could look back at the church in that day, and we're not Catholic bashers here, but boy, that was the church. It was the Catholic church in that day. And, and they, had, they had to say Christ alone because they were saying Christ, but they were adding some things to it for salvation. They were saying scripture alone, but they were adding some things to it. They were saying uh, faith alone. They were saying grace alone, but there were some mixtures in. But they never added anything to glory of God alone. And people say, why did that have to be one of the five solas? Because that wasn't a, they, they were still saying that even if they weren't acting it. We still say it even when we don't act it. That fits, though. It's one of those things that's not like the other. That's the glue. That's the thread running through the other four. What is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Calvin, we've never truly glory in him until we've discarded our own glory. Great illustration for us living out the glory of God solely. Picture yourself. If I ever help you move, I'm going to still tell the same stupid joke. Paul is so tired of hearing it. Every time I go to a move and I'm carrying a mirror out, and I'll hold the mirror up to somebody, I'll say, Where'd, they, where'd you get this funny picture? That's the funniest picture I've ever seen. And they see themselves in the mirror, and I, I laugh, and Paul's like, ah. But picture yourself. Picture us as a church. Are we holding an empty frame, saying, look at me, and putting ourselves in the frame? Or are we the church the Bible wants us to be, that God calls us to be? It's a mirror, but we're not holding it up to the person. We're holding it whatever angle we can and turning it. So people see it and they look and, and, and see God. For the glory of God alone. What we do is we, we, we take the situation we're in and we try and point people to God and to glorify God. As a church, we have to be about this. Sometimes we do acts of mercy. And it really turns into being about ourselves and our own virtually, virtue signaling to ourselves. Virtue signal is a new phrase, but it's not a new concept. You know, kind of name dropping, kind of, hey, I can't see it today because I'm going down to help at the soup kitchen. 
it's been really good for me. And let that sink in. I've told you before when I used to take the youth group down to Loaves and Fishes down in uh, Pensacola. And, you know, they, 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 the kids went. They were good kids. They were busy kids. And sometimes their parents would make them go. And, and they went and they did good. And I was proud of them. But, man, it, there was one girl that was already there, she and her dad, at the Loaves and Fishes. And she knew the names of all the homeless people and the families. She knew where the extra forks were. She knew everything. And she was just, and I thought to myself, boy, what can I do to get my youth group kids to be like this girl? She was like wonderful, teenage girl, all there. And I mentioned to Bill who ran it. And Bill was a wonderful guy, big black man, just like wonderful guy. And, and the food inspector said that place had the cleanest kitchen of all the restaurants downtown, the, the soup kitchen did, because Bill was great. I said, Bill, I said, I'm just so impressed. I'm glad we get to be here and my, my kids get to learn this. But boy, this girl is impressive. He said, and I followed him into the office. He said, we never saw her. And once she gets done serving her community service time for the trouble she got in with the law, we'll never see her again. Your kids are all right. I said, yeah, good, needed that, needed that. Uh, we do things for our own glory. We do things and look glorious. We put glory on other people. We look at, we don't know what's going on. Glory of God alone, solo deo glory. It's for God's glory. Whatever you do to eat or drink, all to the glory of God. Jesus said this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Sola Scriptura. Moving right along. A lot of edicts were being handed down from the church in those days. Tradition became the boss of Scripture. It wasn't that they said Scripture's bad. They said Scripture's good. We're underneath Scripture, but we're also underneath the church tradition. But when they stacked it up, they put the church tradition above the Scripture. Reformers said, no, Scripture first. Basic elemental question one-on-one for ordination. Which came first, the church or the scripture? Does the scripture define the church or does the church define the scripture? And the answer is the scripture defines the church, not the other way around. Godly teachers are great. Godly parents, good advice, godliness. But godly teachers are great because their teaching springs from scripture. Just really fast. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I made a note in my, in my notes to Psalm 119, and I was glad that Rick didn't read that one instead of Psalm 118. I liked Psalm 118 today, but I'm glad that Martin Luther's favorite wasn't 119. Or we'd still be, we'd be getting to the end of that right now. What a great psalm to spend time in. All about God's word and the beauty of it. And just one verse, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Scripture alone, scripture guides us, scripture informs us. We look at scripture. I just wrote, don't neglect scripture. When you can hear it, read it, discuss it, memorize it, pay attention to scripture. That's what you need. You don't have to have everything else. You get other things, and it's good. You need scripture. 
the illustration of the art gallery and a couple of people sitting there looking at a masterpiece hanging on the wall and just criticizing it. And he could have done this, he could have done that, and just criticizing it and making themselves the judge of that masterpiece. And finally, the curator could take it no more. And he walked up to those two and he said, what you're saying is not saying anything about that painting. What you're saying is telling us a lot about yourselves. Scripture alone, not you defining Scripture and what you like and what it should have said and what you think it wants to say and and all of those things. Submit to the Scriptures alone. That's going to get rocky for us in times because the Scripture talks about husbands and wives and Christ and the church and all of those things and what it means. And and in this day and age, uh, uh, it it could lead to some some tough times for God's people who want to say Scripture alone. But we say it anyway. God wrote down for you everything you needed to know that was vital for your spiritual life. Wouldn't you want to read it and read it for comprehension and reread it and work on it? Well, he did. Scripture. Holy Bible, book divine. Third, Christ alone. Acts 4, 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. No one else. That's clear. You you can say, I I don't agree with it, but you can't say it doesn't say Christ alone because it says Christ alone. There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. When this word was delivered, when he said, this is Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, who were the you that he was talking about? The you were the rulers and elders and scribes with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. He was saying, you religious people have done something terrible and you've rejected the cornerstone. And that cornerstone that you rejected, Jesus Christ, is the only way for salvation. As that bluegrass song said that I referenced a couple weeks ago, you better fall on the rock or the rock's going to fall on you. Uh, Jesus Christ. Jesus said to Thomas in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Grace alone, number four. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Classic. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. A good acronym for grace, just a beginner uh, acronym. You can say, well, what does grace mean? Grace means, what's grace? Uh, this old D. James Kennedy evangelism explosion thing. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a, good, that's a good start for you. God's riches at Christ's expense. People get mercy. It means they, they, they don't get what they deserve, but grace is when we get what we don't deserve. And it's free for you. Costly for God. Remember Mad Magazine used to have uh, 50 cents cheap. It would say underneath the, in the front corner. Um, this is cheap. It's free, but it's not cheap. Old Bonhoeffer talked about costly grace. 
uh, free for you, but it came at great price. Grace alone. God's grace alone. Then finally, faith alone. And I referenced just uh, Hebrews 11, which is the faith chapter, and you can, can go, go read that and see that. But verse 1 of Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Gives some examples of, of Christians, and he's going on to give some more. But in, in the middle of that chapter, he said about some of these Christians who exercised faith. He said, these all died in faith, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out. They would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. That seems like a lot of words, but what he's saying is this. Their faith was a faith not in the land that they could see. They looked forward to the heavenly place that God had them. They saw a big picture. And we know it's God who gives the gift of faith. But we look at our circumstances. We do our paycheck or we we go to the doctor's office and get the report or we turn on the news and we watch and we see and we go, man, all of this stuff here can bog me down. But that faith, and boy, there's something inside of me that I know lives forever. I know there's something in in here. And that even when I die, I'm not going to just be like a dog thrown in a ditch somewhere. I'm going somewhere. The faith helps us to see the big picture and put all this in perspective. It's not mere intellectual assent, although you have to know the facts about Jesus to agree to them, but it's more than just the facts. Greatest theologian, this is my trick question to my youth group back in the day, who's the greatest theologian on earth today? Billy Graham, Pastor Finley, you? No, the devil. The devil knows more about God and how God operates than any of us. He's got intellectual assent. He could talk about God all day long. And, and if he wasn't such a liar, uh, if he had to tell the truth, if you gave him truth serum, uh, he would tell you more about God than you could ever know. And yet James says you believe in that there is one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. It's not just knowing facts about God, it's knowing God. Somebody said this. We're just about at the, at the end here. He said, saving faith embraces leans on and trusts in all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Justification is by faith alone because it relies and rests in Christ alone for deliverance from God's wrath. Justification is by faith alone for faith finds its joy in Christ alone, seeing him as the pearl of great price, the one who is more desirable than anything or anyone else. Faith rests in the beloved, realizing that there is no salvation or peace or joy anywhere else. It's not just faith, and it's not just the facts about Jesus. It's a trusting, resting in, embracing Christ alone as your salvation. Julie Andrews sang about uh, having confidence in confidence and all those things. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in Jesus, faith as an object. A Christian leader was writing about faith alone. He said, I've worked in churches and Christian institutions of higher learning all my life. 
My colleagues and students have been a joy to work with. When I hear the stories of the difficulty others have had in their working environment, I give praise to God for the colleagues and students with whom I work. So he covered himself. That was his disclaimer. Now now listen to what he's going to say. Still, it hasn't been paradise on earth. There is gossip, insensitivity, ambition to get to the top, intellectual pride, and political maneuvering. My interaction with some of the finest Christians I've ever known convinces me of justification by faith alone. Finally, he said, I know myself, at least to a limited degree. God, by his grace, has changed me and made me a new person. I have new affections and have lived a totally different life than I would have lived apart from Christ and the transforming work of the Spirit. Yet he says, and we can all say, me too, me too, me too. Yet he says, I still struggle with pride, bitterness, resentment, lust, and so on. The fight with sin is not over, and I've had far too many defeats. Still, by God's grace, I am what I am, 1 Corinthians 15.10. But my confidence on the last day will not rest on my transformation. I have too far to go to put any confidence in what I have accomplished. Instead, I rest on Jesus Christ. He is my righteousness. He is the guarantor of my salvation, Hebrews 7.22. I am justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That's a good Reformation Day quote. One more, and then we conclude. I wrote this in my Bible. I was like, I don't even remember writing this, and I saw it this week. Because when I was preaching through Ephesians, I liked it a lot, and then I wrote it in here and then forgot about it. It's Brian Chapel. We are too dead to be the source of our salvation. We are too weak to be the maintainers of our salvation. We are too finite to be the eternal stewards of our salvation. The magnitude and magnificence of what our salvation involves indicate that it must be entirely a gift of God's grace. Application, conclusion, do not be ashamed of the gospel. You're not a simpleton if you just hang on to the gospel. You're not a simpleton if you've uncluttered your understanding to the point where now you see the gospel. And don't be ashamed of a church that is hanging on to the simple truth of the gospel. That's old-fashioned, that's not razzle-dazzle, maybe even uncool in the eyes of some. Be thankful for the gospel. Have a godly pride in the gospel. Next, don't be bored with the gospel. It's possible to fall in love with the gospel to get, you know, into your habits of life. And then again, I love the movies and I love the stories where the the couple falls in love and then they fall in love again after years of being together and, and taking care of the kids and changing the diapers and doing the work. And then all of a sudden, kids are gone. They look at each other and go, We can do this. This is great. Wow. Thank you, God. Maybe you need to look at the gospel again. Maybe you're bored with it. Don't be distracted from the gospel. It's easy to have this happen. To be distracted by everything else. I've got my dumb routine. 
my stupid websites I look at to get my news. I've got to read the news, got to be informed, and I do that. And I know <laughs> I hit that one. I'm not going to tell you what, what, what side it is, but I go to the next one, the next one. I have my own routine. All those uh, Chinese spying on me or whoever they are spying on me that look at my algorithms, know exactly when I hit the first one what I'm going to do. And I'm like, wait a minute, I need to not do that. Distracts me from the gospel. Final quotation, we're going to the table right now. Christ alone and no other redeemer is the mediator of our salvation. Grace alone and not any other human contribution saves us. Faith alone and no other human action is the instrument by which we're saved. Scripture and no merely human word is our ultimate standard of authority. God's glory alone and that of no creature is the supreme end of all things. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us. Amen. Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way also he took the cup after supper.